Well, if you haven't already done so, please grab your Bibles and, and turn with me to the book of Lamentations. We are in Lamentations 4 this morning, verses 1 through 16. If you're using the blue ESV Bible and the seat backs in front of you, you can find our text on page 689. The title of our sermon this morning is, The, uh, the Lord Has Scattered. And uh, the key words for our worshipers in training are dim, scatter, and stones. Lamentations chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Here's some pages turning if you're looking for it. It's in between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They're in the Old Testament. Tucked away. We've gone over halfway through this letter and uh, we've got just a few sermons left as we work through it. Praying for God's help. Lamentations 4, 1 through 16. In the year of her, uh, sorry, in the second year of her PhD studies in ocean sciences at Bangor University, a woman named Beth Francis was diagnosed with chronic migraine. Uh, she had suffered with migraines uh, periodically up to that point, but at that point she was experiencing migraines 28 out of 30 days of the month. For most of the day, she was bedridden and unable even to, to get up to go to the restroom herself. Uh, it was utter misery. She says that by the point of this diagnosis, it felt as though her whole world had collapsed and was continuing to collapse in on itself. As I mentioned, she'd suffered before. She began experiencing migraines around the age of nine. She was hospitalized in her teenage years and early 20s, but mercifully, mercifully, these migraines were infrequent. But by May of 2017, as I said, she went from a few a month to nearly every single day. She had gone from rel- relative health, and she was a relatively active person and enjoyed her life. By May of 2017, her life amounted to nothing more than a shell, in her words. After multiple failed medical interventions, she and her partner Andy set themselves a challenge. They had read a paper regarding the health benefits of being around the water. So they decided to swim in the cold waters of the Atlantic Ocean near their home in, uh, in Lessee, Wales. Maybe I'm saying that right. It's in Wales. Uh, for 100 days straight, they were going to swim in the cold water of the ocean. They wanted to see how it would make them feel. And they documented this journey in a film entitled 100 Days of Vitamin C. C being S-E-A. Well, quickly, in this endeavor, and you can see it in this film, she found that being active in nature, in the cold water in particular, it had helped improve her health. and helped her cope physiologically and psychologically with these debilitating migraines. The cold water had a pain-relieving effect on her. Her migraines, both in frequency and intensity, diminished. But it didn't rid her of migraines altogether. There are times in the film, well after 100 days in, where she's still bedridden, There's one scene in particular where her cries of agony and pain are unbearable to hear. 
I can only imagine how they felt. In the course of this film, one of the discoveries that she makes is this. She says, just because I've found a remedy for this problem, a, 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 a remedy of sorts for my problem, there is no escaping pain in this life. And it isn't a panacea fix all that I just go swimming and I, my, my head never hurts again. Right? While the application of cold water for her was a tremendous help, it wasn't a complete fix or cure. Lamentations 4 reminds us that in the present age, God's grace in our sin and suffering are a light like Beth's experience in the ocean with her pain. Over the past three weeks, we've been looking at Lamentations 3, and we've seen how the poet models for us a biblical expression of lamentation, hope, and repentance. And if you were reading through the book for the first time, you might be tempted to think that once you get to Lamentations 3, that it's smooth sailing for the rest of the way. Right? You might think, okay, Lamentations 1 and 2, I get it. It's darkness, it's despair. Lady Zion doesn't quite believe. She doesn't quite get it. She's not able to frame it all right. But then we get to Lamentations 3, and the poet says, I've forgotten what happiness is, but then I call God's word to mind, and I'm reminded that God is good, God is just, God is sovereign, and I can trust in Him. So let's not complain, but let's repent of our sins and trust the Lord to deliver us as He has in the past. And then we might think the book could end, or perhaps these next two poems would just be full of hope and light. But the poet of this book is far too in tune with reality for that. Yes, God's love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. God's faithfulness is great. And yet, even in that hope, even with a reconciled God, there is still suffering in this world and in your life in particular. And so rather than a triumphant and glorious exploration of joy and happiness in God, what we find in Lamentations 4 is a return to sorrow, a return to grief, a return to pain. And the first thing that we notice, if, when, when, when we read this and as you read it on your own at other places, you would notice that there's not exactly a cut and dry, neat and tidy, very logical way in which the the poet's train of thought moves from one topic to the next. He has a very, it seems, a loose outline of what he's trying to accomplish here, but there is a sense of distress in the flow of thought in this poem as he plunges back into the pain of the present moment. We've noted that the first three poems are all written in the acrostic form, meaning right A, B, C, D in, in English terms would kind of guide the verses Lamentations 4 also maintains this acrostic device, unlike the fifth poem, but the flow of thought is harder to follow, and you'll notice that the verses are shorter. And so you've got 22 two-line stanzas instead of 22 three-line stanzas, as we've seen thus far. So I want to read the first 16 verses here, and then give a a general outline of what we're going to, to do, and then we'll get to work. He says... How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. 
the precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches of, in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those, once, those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coal. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to His wrath. He poured out His hot anger and He kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gate of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away! Unclean! People cried at them. Away! Away! Do not touch! So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord Himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priest, no favor to the elders. So there's just two big ideas that I want you to see with me from this text today. First, in, um, in these verses, we will see the poet lament a series of reversals that has taken place in Jerusalem that affect really the entirety of of the society. So there's a series of reversals that we'll see. And then, scattered throughout these reversals, the poet offers us some guidance in terms of forming an assessment of the result of this suffering. So we're going to look at the reversals and then we're going to consider how do we make an assessment of these, of these sufferings. So look with me in the first place where we find four reversals scattered throughout these verses like buckshot. Before we look at them or know what they are, I want to note um, the, the similarities between this poem and the first. So if you weren't here uh, back in October or you missed the opening sermon for Lamentations back in October... We noted there that the poem, and therefore the book, begins with a recognition of, uh, again, a a series of reversals that had taken place in Jerusalem. Uh, When Babylon, in 586 B.C., came and destroyed the city, um, brought the temple to the ground in fulfillment of God's warnings of judgment against Israel, against Judah for her sins, um, the, the 
the book begins with a series of reversals. And it's not many, uh, as many here. It's just three. He says in verse 1, right? How the lonely city sits. How, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. And so the, the poem begins, the book begins by calling our attention to these reversals. A bustling city has become desolate. The great nation has become poor. The princess has become a slave. Right? We've moved from fullness to emptiness, from greatness to nothingness, from power to slavery to impotence. And having built toward a climax of hope in Lamentations 3, the, the poet basically, as we said, plunges us once more into this dark agony of the present moment, the present suffering of his people, right? They, when he writes this, they're still suffering. It's written not that long after this siege by Babylon. And so, he, yes, he's hopeful, but the pain is still real and very present. The hope of Lamentations 3 for him is still a long way off. In the present moment, we're still suffocating in, in misery. And so there's this call back to just the very beginning that the present realities haven't left. And so here are some more reversals that he notes. And they're similar in theme to the, to the first three. So four reversals. And before we, one more thing before we get to the reversals. I want to front load some application here. Brothers and sisters, we must resist to think, we must resist the temptation to think that believing in Jesus, trusting in his sovereign, loving care for us, and knowing that he's working out all things for the good of his people, we need to resist the temptation to think that that is an instant fix all. Yes, the gospel is the answer to our deepest problems, but that doesn't mean it removes our pain and suffering instantly. Far from it. What it does is it makes the pain of our suffering bearable. Something to be endured in the hope that one day Jesus will rid the world of suffering. Will rid the world of pain. Right In the end, the gospel helps you to remember that your suffering is not only limited in that it won't last forever, but it's limited in that it is measured. It is not more than you deserve. And it is brought to you by the hand of a good and loving sovereign God. And this is what we saw in Limitations 3. And so let's keep ourselves from thinking that believing in Jesus means that we're not allowed to hurt. Okay. Now, four reversals. Here they are. Riches to rags. Feasting to famine. Beauty to blight. And safety to shunning. So the first one, riches to rags. And we see this in the first two verses. There's a reversal here that has to do with this loss of wealth. He describes the destruction of Jerusalem in terms that convey only what can be described as a riches to rags story. He says their gold has grown dim. The, the holy stones of this temple, once ordered and built and together and orderly, they now lie scattered in the street. If you want to read up more, you can read about this destruction in Jeremiah 40 and 52. 
The temple was destroyed. It was burned. All the precious treasure within it carried off to Babylon. But the point of these opening verses is not ultimately about money. It's not ultimately about the gold or the temple, the physical structures of Jerusalem and the material possessions. Because what he says in verse 2, he says, The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Right, The gold that the poet is concerned about is fundamentally not the gold of a temple. It's the people of Jerusalem. These valuable human beings made in the image of God, the Bible tells us, they are comparable to earth's most precious treasures and metals. And yet, in this siege, in this destruction of the city, they are treated as nothing more than clay pots, clay vessels. And so one reversal that he notes here is a a true riches to rags story. Well, secondly, feasting to famine. We see this in verses 3 to 5 and 9 through 9 and 10. It's stated most plainly in verse 5. He says, Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. And he describes this perishing in verse 9 as complete agony. He says, It would be better to be slain by the sword, to be cut down in battle, to be executed with a sword, than to die of hunger, wasting away. Pierced, he says, not by metal, but by a lack of fruit in the field. I've never been stabbed with a sword or starved to death, so I don't know. But his perspective certainly was how agonizing it is to waste away and to watch others waste away. The long nature of the suffering as opposed to a quick cutting down in a fight. In verse 3, he makes this reference to jackals and ostriches that it might be a little odd to us. But the point seems to be clear enough, right? The He's, he's lamenting the state of, of Jerusalem such that the, these, the mothers, the, the parents of these children are not providing for them, either because they just absolutely can't, or as we saw back in um, the first poem, that maybe it's because they're, they're choosing not to. They're choosing themselves over, over their children. But he says here, the jackals, despite being cruel scavengers, feeding on the carcasses of the dead, they're not known as compassionate animals, but they still feed their young. But the people of Israel become more like ostriches, who, from what I understand, according to the conventional wisdom of the day, that, that they were understood to, to abandon their, their young. And so he compares these, these two animals and says, man, even jackals will provide for, for their, their young, and yet now my, my people don't. Their, their infants, their, their tongues stick to the roof of their mouths and their children beg for food to be given none. And, and the, what he highlights here in this second reversal from, from feasting to famine, it calls our minds back to Lamentations 2, verse 20, where Lady Zion asks a, a question that sort of gets restated here in verse 10. Right? She, she asks in verse 20, of Lamentations 2, should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? So here in these verses, we see that 
these mothers were unable or unwilling to care for their children, some even resulting to the horrific practice of eating their children, eating their offspring. The infants received no milk, the young children no bread from the land, and those who did seemingly survive that, some of them were killed, cooked, and eaten by starving and desperate parents. And even back in Deuteronomy, we saw God had prophesied that this would happen. This is how utterly distraught and distressed the situation would be, was that parents, parents would take the lives of their own children. And of course, it, it was wrong and it was wicked, a pure abomination what these parents did. And, and it's also necessary that we, we acknowledge that. And we also need to acknowledge that the point of this passage isn't first to condemn the parents for what they did, but to help us feel the extreme suffering that was brought upon Israel, brought upon Jerusalem. Right, the point of the passage is to say, dear reader, the circumstances of this siege were so bad, so awful, that people were starving and dying in the streets. And in their violent agony, some parents miserably chose to condemn their children to death for their own sins. And as we saw from chapter 2, the implications for 2022 here in the West are, are obvious from a passage like this. The abortion industry has been propped up and propagated by evil, wicked, demonic people and entities who have convinced millions upon millions of mothers and fathers that their circumstances are so bad that they have no choice but to what? Kill their children to save their own life. Of course, no suffering of a parent justifies the murder of a child, but and those parents are guilty of sin, but the enemy has been extremely crafty and effective in convincing many of them that they had to do it. And so practically for us, we, we rejoice in the overturning of, of Roe versus Wade this past summer, and we pray for just laws to be enacted and enforced among the states. But we realize there's still work to be done. We realize there's still hurting people to be cared for. There's still children to be loved and to be provided for. And, and so as a church, we need to think about how, what does it look like for us to lead with compassion for the children, but also compassion for the parents who are confused and duped by a wicked society into thinking that an act of murder is going to help them. And so it is uncomfortable to face what these parents did in Israel. It's uncomfortable to face what parents do every day in America and around the world. But we know that this is something agonizing. Something that we need to care deeply about and provide help all around. And so I'm thankful for the work that has gone on at RBC toward that end and pray that God would help us to do it further. So that's the second reversal, feasting to famine. A third reversal, beauty to blight. And this we can see back up in verses 7 and 8. The poet 
He mentions this at the end of verse 5 as well. He, he says that those who were brought up in purple now embrace ash heaps. The princes whose physical appearance was extremely pleasant, he says, have been reduced to skin and bones. Their appearance, he says, was purer than snow, whiter than milk. They were more ruddy than, than coal. He said, it's like a, a precious gem. Think of a sapphire. If you want to know how beautiful the people were, how beautiful the leaders were, how beautiful the princes were, think of a sapphire. He says, but now this reversal has come upon them. Their, their face is so dirty, they're blacker than soot. They, they can't even be recognized in the streets as they walk about like skeletons. And again, I've referenced Lamentations 2.15 several times throughout the series, but I think it's, it's an important verse as we think about the effect all of this has had on them. 2.15, uh, or the enemies of Jerusalem ask, is this the beauty of the earth? Jerusalem, is this the city that, that was supposed to be the joy of all the earth? This beautiful city, Jerusalem, where God Himself was pleased to dwell, has been reduced literally and metaphorically to an ash heap. So we've seen riches to rags, feasting to famine, beauty to blight, and fourthly, safety to shunning. We see this in verses 12 through 15. In verse 12, we read what is perhaps a bit of an artistic license, an artistic exaggeration. The poet says that no one could ever have imagined Jerusalem ever being successfully invaded by an enemy army. Right? Could someone have imagined that? Probably. But the point is obvious. They lived in safety. They were safe. They were secure. No one really thought that that was going to happen. No one really believed, despite being warned about it for centuries, that they could be Invaded. There was a time when Jerusalem was a a real powerhouse there in the Middle East. It wouldn't have been obvious to anyone at the time, especially under David and really under Solomon, that the city would be leveled. But that's what happened. And and so the safety that they had now gives way to shunning, which you see over in 14 and 15, they're wandering blind through the streets, defiled with blood. No one would touch them. No one would house them or home them. They were just shouted at them, unclean, unclean, warning others that these unclean and, and defiled persons were approaching. The security, the safety that they had previously experienced and enjoyed under God's covenant blessing, now under the covenant curses, has given way to fugitive living. They are on the run. They are wanderers. They had nowhere to go among the nations. And so that those are these are those are the four reversals that we see. The poet laments these great reversals brought upon Jerusalem in this siege, five eighty six BC, by the Bab- Babylonians. How do we understand these things? How does the poet understand these things? Does the poet offer us any kind of of help? Does he offer us any kind of of hope? The truth is, there's not really any explicit hope to be found in these verses. There's a a slender thread, perhaps, to see at the end of this poem. But but there's really no 
hope to speak of here in verses 1 through 16. But there are three lessons that I want to set before us this morning. Three takeaways from these first 16 verses in Lamentations 4. The first, and I think most obviously, is this, and it's, it's been a repeated theme throughout this book, is that God judges sin. The poet makes this explicit in two different places. He says in verse 11 that the Lord had given full vent to His wrath. He poured out His anger. He kindled a fire in Zion, consuming it down to its very foundations. Then we see in verse 15 that these reversals came upon Israel because of her sin. Sorry, I said two places, meant three. So it's this, it happens because of sin here in verse 13. Namely, the sin of the leaders. It was a sin of her, her prophets. Sin of the iniquity of her priests who shed the righteous blood in her midst. And then a third place, he, he says in verse 16, that it was the Lord who scattered. Right, 16 being tied in with verse 1. The scattered stones lie at the head of every street. Verse 16, it is the Lord who has done this scattering. And he says the Lord will regard them no more. And he removes the honor from the priest and the favor from the elders. Brothers and sisters, one of the drumbeats of this book is this truth. God judges sin. We see also in this text, a second thing is that the judgment for sin is more than we can bear. Look what he says in verse 6. He says, The chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and, and no hands were wrung for her. Sodom is likely a, ref, a, a familiar reference to you. We read about Sodom in the book of Genesis, along with its sort of sister city, Gomorrah. In chapter 13 of Genesis, Abraham's nephew Lot moves to Sodom. It's a beautiful city, but a broken place. And then by the time you get to Genesis 18 and 19, we read about Sodom and Gomorrah and their great and grievous sins and how the Lord's anger was, was going to be visited upon them. He was going to destroy these cities because of their wickedness. And Abraham and the Lord discuss this. And Abraham really is pleading for the, the life of, of Lot, ultimately. And Lot is spared, but God does destroy Sodom. And here's what Genesis 19.24 says. It says, The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew out of the ground. When Abraham saw the destruction of the cities the next morning, this is, says he saw the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. The suffering of Jerusalem, we're told, was greater than that. And so the, the point, when God judges sin, it is more than we can bear. God is, is not to be trifled with. And when it is time for sin and sinners to be judged, in Psalm 2, the, the, the wicked are scattered like chaff. And when God visits sin, we cannot stand up to it. So God judges sin. 
The judgment of sin is unbearable. A third lesson that we can take from all this brings us back to the beginning of this poem in uh, one verses 1 and 2. Verse 2 in particular. To the reference in verse 2, the work of the potter's hands, does that, does that remind you of anything? Does that draw your attention to something? Well, I, I, I hope it does. It, we've referenced it already in, in this series in Jeremiah 18. We we'll read this in the first few verses. Um, Jeremiah is told to go down to the potter's house. Verse 4, the vessel he was making was clay. It was spoiled in the potter's hands, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. And then the word of the Lord in verse 4 comes to Jeremiah, and he says this, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter has done? This potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like clay in the potter's hands, so you are in mine, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent in the disaster that I intended to do to it. We also saw back in Lamentations 1 that that this judgment for sin need not to have happened. We saw in Lamentations 1 and my, what I want to argue for here is that the, the poet, here in Lamentations 4.2, is making the same point. Right? Previously, Jeremiah had prophesied that if Judah would have repented, like clay in the potter's hands, he would have relented of the disaster prophesied against her. Here in verse 2, the description of the potter's hands, the poet subtly calls us to remember that all of this suffering, these four great reversals that we've seen in Jerusalem, right? Poverty, starvation, ugliness, and shunning. All of these things could have been, should have been by the people avoided. God had offered a way out. Jeremiah offered this over and over and over again, but Jerusalem refused to repent. And so the point is that while God judges sin, and when the judgment comes, it is completely and absolutely devastating, it is nevertheless, it it always comes with a warning. So let me close with this. Or begin to close with this. How? How can sin, or how can the judgment for sin be avoided? I mean, that, that is the obvious question, right? Okay, pastor, okay, poet in Lamentations. Sin, is, sin brings judgment. Judgment is unbearable. How can this judgment be avoided if that's the third thing we learn here, is that it need not to come to you? If the reference to the potter's hands then, so here's the answer. If the reference to the potter's hands draws us back to Jeremiah 18, does not the poet's lament of the death of the sons of Zion thrust us forward to the death of the one true son of Zion? Was not the Lord Jesus worth far more than his weight in fine gold? And yet was he not regarded as an earthen vessel by his father? 
Did Jesus not cry out on the cross in thirst with his tongue sticking to the roof of his mouth? Was he not neglected on the cross by his father? Did not the king of heaven robed not in purple, but in light? Did he not embrace the metaphorical ash heap in the garden as he sweat drops of blood? Is there a prince in the history of the world, a prince or king lovelier than he? And yet he assumed what? A lowly appearance. And he was marred, according to Isaiah, beyond recognition. What Were not the hands of his compassionate father turned against him? If God could be said to pour out, to give full vent to his wrath against Jerusalem, how much more could this be said of Christ? He poured out his wrath upon him. I think about verse 12. Jerusalem was impenetrable. But more than that, who could have believed that the king of heaven could be conquered by a comparatively small Roman army? The king with 12,000 legions of warrior angels at his disposal invaded. On the cross, Jesus was left in darkness. He was defiled and he became untouchable. He had in his life no house, no home. He was rejected by his own people. He too was disregarded by God. Why? Was it not, as verse 13 says, for the sins of the prophets and the priests who led the people astray? Was it not for your sins, my friend? Do you wish to know how you might escape the unbearable of judgment, the unbearable judgment of sin that God has set for a day coming in the future? This afternoon, next week, next year? It is coming. Do you want to know how to escape? Cast your sins upon Jesus. Consider your sin reckoned to Him. Consider His righteousness reckoned to you. The judgment that hangs over your head if you don't know Christ this morning, it need not fall on you. But there is only one way of escape. Have you entrusted yourself to the good, compassionate, just, and sovereign Lord? And, and for all of us, right? as we noted with, with Beth Francis and her life, hope doesn't exist in a vacuum. Hope doesn't exist in, you know, with, with rainbows and butterflies in this life. Hope exists in the context of suffering. That, that's what hope is. Peace with God doesn't mean an easy life. Right? You can say with all of the hope, surety, and confidence in the world that you believe and love the words of the gospel, but that doesn't instantly remove you from a world ravaged by sin and suffering. But one day it will. But now it gives us hope and strength to endure and to press on. And, and now what we have, in just a minute, we're once more invited to taste and see in the midst of your sorrow, whatever it is, brother, sister, this morning, in the midst of your sorrow, you're invited to taste and see that the Lord, the Lord is good. 